the problem is most of us don't know that we don't know who we are. And, and, and so we, we give over to circumstance. We let environment shape us. We, we um, react. We don't respond to all the things that life throws at us. Um, when you can, can really dig into what the Enneagram of personality is, is showing you about yourself, what it first and foremost does is, is, is highlights that, that, that your essence, your existence, your purpose is a gift. And that gift is actually one of nine that, that exists to heal the world. Hey everybody, and welcome to the advice not given podcast. Each week, we share unfiltered, truth-telling conversations between friends. You're invited to eavesdrop as we give each other the advice you didn't ask for, but wish you did. We're your hosts, Kelly Artis and Claire Wood of Millspo Gurus, and this is Advice Not Given. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this episode of the Advice Not Given podcast. Guys and gals, we have waited so long, so long to release this particular episode. I can tell you that it was originally recorded, the interview Kelly did with this special, special guest was originally recorded back in February, and we were purposely holding on to it for a special time for, um, you know, kind of as a gift to our listeners. And then all of the craziness with all that's gone on in the world happened, and we just felt like it wasn't time. Well, as fate would have it, it's time now to release this wonderful episode because our special guest, Chris Hewerts, he is releasing his book, The Enneagram of Belonging, and we are here for it. And we want to offer you a very special treat of this conversation that he and Kelly had. So Kelly, tell us a little bit about like, what was this like getting to interview him? Well, first of all, it was super, it was it was crazy. It was awesome. It was amazing. He was um, such a joy to speak to, super patient, understanding, and um, taught me a lot Like as we mm-hmm. were going along. So I didn't record the conversation that he and I had to begin with. But um, he, first of all, just so down to earth and like cool and chill. And I don't know, I guess sometimes I think like folks on this kind of tier or stature or just notoriety um, might not be. And he really was just amazing uh, to talk to. He had everyone in his office, like, be quiet. Like he was like taking it so seriously. <laughs> I was like, awesome. that's amazing. Yeah. So treating us, uh, you know, with the same respect, I think he would any huge podcaster or, per, you know, show that he'd been on. So I just, I really loved that. Um, it was also really neat to talk to another eight especially like a male Enneagram eight, um, because, and y'all, you guys will hear, I drew him in a lot, uh, and kind of asked him a lot of questions because my husband is an eight. So I was kind of like, uh, getting some free therapy there for a little bit just to help understand. Um, yeah, that, what that's like. Um, we have both Claire and I've been kind of obsessed with his work and his book, um, the Enneagram or the sacred Enneagram. Um, and then as fate would have it. Yeah. At the timing of when we had this conversation, he's releasing another book, um, to come out today, May 19th. So hopefully you guys, um, if you find some inspiration in the conversation, you'll go check out his work. It is definitely worth a read. Um, and I hope that this also will present better timing for him and his staff. I know they have had to kind of bob and weave with coronavirus, uh, at their center, um, to be able to, um, accommodate, losing speaking engagements and losing, um, opportunities to do workshops and, um, everything that all the work that they do has been impacted. So definitely take the opportunity to check out their work. Um, so what is their work? Okay. So Chris Hewart's, if you guys are not familiar with him, um, 
has spent his entire life, his bio says, bearing witness to the possibility of hope among a world that has legitimate reasons to question God's goodness. So she's let that sink in. (laughs) So he's from Nebraska. He's married to um, an amazing woman who I follow as well. Her name is Felina. Um, They actually, uh, well, he started out his career actually uh, being mentored by Mother Teresa uh, for three years. No big deal. Well, he was, no, it gets better. While he was living in India, he helped launch South Asia's first pediatric AIDS care home. So essentially, caring for babies and children impacted by that pandemic. So, um, right. I know. So they, um, in 2012, I mean, you know, I'm skipping a lot here, but in 2012, his wife and, um, himself launched a center called gravity. Um, and it's a center for contemplative activism. And a lot of the work that he does, I think branches out of, um, their sort of roots and foundations there. He's written several books, all of which are amazing. Um, and he took some time out of his, well, formerly busy schedule. I'm sure he's still busy, but, um, he goes around, he's, he's kind of known as like an Enneagram. We can call him an actual guru, whereas we say it tongue in cheek. I absolutely would. And what's fine. He wouldn't, I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what's cool actually. So he mentions this towards the end, but he's launched a new podcast, um, himself called the Enneagram map makers where he, is the student and he has, um, all of the, he calls them the legacy teachers. Mm -hmm. So everyone that like, and, and really the tradition, this, this system, well, the, the modern day advent of the system, the teachers are all still here. Like it's only, you know, 50 to 70 years old or so. So Mm -hmm. he's asking all of them, all of the questions that we're like asking him. So it's really, it's really incredible. He's super humble. Um, I just, I adore the way he thinks about things. Now, you guys, this is the warning that I'm going to give you. <laughs> Pause, rewind, or you're going to be your best friends throughout this episode. So this is not a wash the dishes, you know, cook dinner and fold some laundry kind of episode. This is a sit somewhere quiet and let it sink in. I have, I had the conversation in real time. I have listened to it several times since I have spent time editing it and I still haven't really fully soaked up everything, all of the nuggets, um, that he left. So, um, yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like if you're normally like driving or taking a walk or a jog while you're listening to our podcast, don't plan to do that for this one. You're going to definitely want to have a seat with a pen, a paper, um, right. a coffee, and like fully give your attention to to this yeah. wisdom. It's so profound. Yeah, don't feel bad if it if it goes past you. I mean, it went past me. Like I said, like I was having the conversation in real time, and I was like, wait, I missed most of that. And we also have this tendency of only hearing about our type, right? So I would say, you know, definitely pick that out the first go round if you want to rewind or go back and listen again to the other types, because it really is. I mean, when he, when he drops some knowledge about, about the five, like I, I literally teared up Claire, like in right. the conversation, I was like, that just struck me. But then he's moving on to the six, the seven. I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> I need a minute. So if you guys yeah. hear me pausing, you know, after the the statements, um, I was just like trying to soak it in as best I can and even pretend like my questions were still relevant. So, well, another thing I love about it is we, you and I know that this conversation happened several months ago, but even for me re-listening to it in preparation for this week's episode release, it just, it hit me the same way. Like there are a couple mm-hmm. different points where I teared up and just, I think in light of everything that's gone on these last few months, everything mm-hmm. that he said months ago 
is still so true and is still just mm. so spot on for what we're dealing with. And in fact, he used a, a phrase early in the interview talking about how um, we we live in a state of reacting instead of responding. Right. And I'm like, oh, Chris, yes. you're so right. <laughs> Absolutely. Because right. I've been feeling that the last several weeks. And so um, I think our, our listeners who are Enneagram people are going to absolutely eat this up and um, yeah. you're going to love it. Yeah. So you guys, please enjoy. Let this be a precursor and kind of a primer. It's more than a primer, but a primer for the conversations that we want to have over the coming weeks. Um, As we mentioned on last week's episode, we do still want to do sort of a a dip into each of the Enneagram types and hear from you all uh, what, you know, some some facets of what it's like to be your type. So we're going to get into that um, in the coming weeks, but this would be a really great place maybe not to start if you're brand new to the Enneagram, but at least um, if you're familiar, start, you know, trying to pick apart the meaning of the system and sort of the intentions. And I just want to add one last thing. I know there's so much Enneagram material out there. Um, And as you mentioned, Kelly, we both absolutely love his sacred Enneagram book. And I will just tell you that of all the things I read and all the books that I studied, it wasn't until I got into Chris's book that I personally saw the spiritual overlay for the Enneagram Mm -hmm. in my own life and that his stillness and solitude and silence and, and just really practical implications for what that looks like in our lives. So Mm -hmm. if you are kind of in a place maybe where you're needing to reset that area of your own life, I think you're going to love this conversation. I do too. I do too. I think it just, it it's, and the way it's presented, it just gives you permission to just be like, okay, I can detach from those facades that mask and um, really dig into some deeper meaning. I, yeah, that's great. So you guys, please enjoy this interview with Chris Hewarts. We are joined today by Chris Hewarts, and he is actually the author, among many other things, but the author of Claire and I's very favorite Enneagram book. It's called The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for for including me. I'm so excited to talk about the Enneagram, about self-discovery, specifically identity in our community. Um, And I know we don't always talk about military spouse-ness being kind of like the anchor of our podcast, but since that's so crucial and core to who Claire and I both kind of identify as, uh, I wanted to bring Chris in and ask him some questions about how he may see the Enneagram as a tool and maybe some... um, helpful tips for us moving forward. So you spend a lot of time early on in the book talking about the differences between identity and dignity. Um, could you give us a little overview of uh, your thoughts on that? Sure. So I, I think fundamentally at our core, um, there's there's a few things that sort of ache in our soul. And, and of course, one of those is our need and our desire to, to belong, to, to be known. But I think the precursor to that is the, our inability to, to really know and belong to ourselves. And, and so this comes back to these fundamental issues of identity and dignity. And um, an old teacher once said that identity is, is who we are and dignity is what we're worth. And I, and, I, and I think that kind of lands pretty pretty well in my own experience. The problem is I think a lot of us spend more time trying to sort of fill out, trick out, and earn dignity so that we can become who we think we want to be rather than 
simply starting with, we are inherently beautiful, inherently loved. We can't earn that. We can't do anything to be more lovable. And if we can simply just rest in our dignity, the identity flows. So who we are shows itself. And that's really this 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 long journey of of not only belonging, but also this journey of becoming. Mm, that's so true. And I want to say that I've heard you say before that no one can love perfectly or has the capability to be or receive love perfectly. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So I, I, I think in the Enneagram you will often see this. There's um this notion that that type is either sort of shaped or fortified by a so-called childhood wound. And my sense is this, that these so-called childhood wounds aren't actually real wounds. It's more kind of like a, a kid life crisis. It's more like a confirmation mm-hmm. bias that we've lost contact with our essence. It's more uh, uh, the the actual felt sense of, of, of becoming distant from our childhood and childlike innocence. But you see, we still have to language it wound because that disconnect from innocence, that disconnect from essence is, is painful. And when we language it with wound, what we're doing is, is we're blaming. And so I think to maybe clear that up a little bit, we have to actually just admit that we all had imperfect early holding environments and our parent or parents or, or caregiver could not have loved us perfectly. But you know what? We also did not have the ability or the capacity to perfectly receive love. And so this is just part of being human. And, 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 and yes, the experience of the wound makes it feel and, and, and in many cases causes it to be a real wound. But I, I, I really do think that in the accident of not loving perfectly and being able to receive love perfectly, we, we kind of miss each other and it becomes this really tragic dance. Okay. So I know it's human nature to kind of over-associate with your roles, let's say, um, you know, things you do. So that goes back to your identity. What we think of as identity is, you know, who am I? So for me, I am a marketer. I am a military spouse. I am a mom, all of those things. Well, a lot of those things can be taken away from me <laughs> at any, any given time. I'm a resident of this town or at this duty station and whatnot. Um, a lot of times, especially those of us um, in the military spouse community, we maybe find a career or a job or a calling and have to move away and lose that. Um, so how do you think, do you think that that's detrimental? I guess on what level is it detrimental for us to over-identify with those roles? And then how do we start to kind of peel back and uncover what else we can hold on to um, and go about our lives in a more healthy way. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, this is part of our, our fundamental human nature that we actually subconsciously give permission to any one of the fragments of who we are to lay claim to the whole of who we think we are or who we want to be. And so in that sort of fragment itself, yes, like we present we project we, we we play into roles we 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 give over to environments phases of life um transitions major life transitions like moves and um and in allowing any one of these fragments to lay claim to the whole of who we are everything is actually lost so i i think something like the enneagram actually helps us sort of return to center it helps us return to um the the created reason our souls exist and and when we can align with that all these transitions, phase of life transitions, um, location transitions and moves, um, crises and, and trauma and loss um, are actually more 
more invitations then to, to, to continue to be aligned with that gift of our, our truest, most authentic self. But you see, I, I, I think a lot of us don't know who that is. I think a lot of mm-hmm. us, and I, and I say this a bunch, the problem is most of us don't know that we don't know who we are. And, and, and mm-hmm. so we, we give over to circumstance. We let environment shape us. We, we um, react. We don't respond to all the things that life throws at us. Um, when you can, can really dig into what the Enneagram of personality is, is showing you about yourself, what it first and foremost does is, is, is highlights that, that, that your essence, your existence, your purpose is a gift. And that gift is actually one of nine that, that exists to heal the world. And, um, and that can't be taken from you. Yeah, we can, we can smash it down. We can try to hide it, but in the end, it's it's always going to be there, and so that's also why sometimes you hear that the enneagram is a, a teaching and a tool for remembering. It's it's remembering who we are. So I think I have a perfect example of that, and I'm going to throw my co-host under the bus here, even though she's not here to talk about it. Um, so my co-host Claire identifies as a type six, and um, she talks a lot about the struggle of you know losing community over and over and over again. Right? Mm-hmm. That's it's it's challenging. It's tough. It's that's where her security lies is, is her people, her group, her, her network. And she has to continually like leave that at each place and then, and pack up and try to reestablish it. But I challenged her the other day, like, okay, but don't you think that makes you more, um, adept at doing that? And she is the person to create the community and people flock to her Mm -hmm. because of that. Do you feel that that is probably true for a lot of us? And do we, how can we sort of magnify those effects within ourselves? Mm-hmm. Well, so so for a six, you 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 know the sixes are our source of courage, our source of strength, they're they're a source of faith. And 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 that's one of the reasons we're drawn to them. And and, and I think when you can actually own that and, and and make peace with that, when you can actually have an honest relationship with with your type and and, and with the, the the strengths that are sort of hidden and tucked away into it, then certainly like there's something attractive. There's something enamoring. There's something um, magnetic about that that will draw people to us. And and so I think in nine different ways, um, we we find that in nine different ways we we return to that home. Nine different ways we we allow ourselves to be loved because in nine different ways we're a source of love. And 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 my sense is this: like you you can know that about yourself, and and you can use something like the Enneagram to see that and and, and support that in you. Um, but the Enneagram is just a support. It's just one of many mm-hmm. tools that are out there for this. Um, not every person who, who, who is a source of strength and, and, and courage and faith, um, that is actually dominant in Enneagram type six doesn't know that maybe most of them are even unaware of the teaching. It's just this invitation to return to the most human aspect of who we are. And, and, and I think that's, what's going to that's going to help heal the world. And I think that's because it's the evidence of our healing, right? My wife says this all the time, to the extent we are transformed, the world is transformed. And Mm. and I think there's something freeing in that. I love that. There's, there's so much talk too, especially in our space of, of the challenges mainly because, you know, there are, there are many and it's not an easy lifestyle. Again, it's one we chose. It's one we, we wouldn't give up, you know, because we love our service members. Um, and it is a respectable and, and amazing calling in life, but those that thrive are the ones that, uh, kind of fully give into it and relinquish mm-hmm. 
the the control or the concepts of well you know kind of very, I used to call okay so we're called dependents in the system mm-hmm. like we're literally a number we're not even a name we're our service member's social security number it's crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> so we are dependent on the system and when you actually start to internalize that language and think no <laughs> I have goals I have dreams I have all of this but I have to come second to the like the the military is the first wife and I'm the second wife or spouse um, but I love that once you kind of let go of that resistance to it and try to start to make your own way in the lifestyle, um, you find a lot more opportunities, opportunities for growth. And I feel like the Enneagram is so complimentary to that because Mm. it's exactly kind of the same idea. You're fighting your, maybe fighting your personality, um, in some way, right. Or not understanding why the world perceives you or why you think the world perceives you (laughs) in a certain way. Um, and kind of, um, releasing into that. Um, I don't know. That's just kind of a, a quick thought that popped into my mind. Um, yeah. How do you, Chris, um, we talk a lot about stress. Can you kind of talk a little bit about, um, what the lines of the Enneagram mean and maybe how they relate to, I'm not sure what language you use around like stress and growth or disintegration, integration. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about what those lines mean on the Enneagram for those that know their type. And then also what it could potentially mean for those of us who, or maybe in prolonged states of stress due to the circumstances that we live. Sure. So I um my my second Enneagram book is actually the Enneagram of Belonging. And in that I actually mm-hmm. tackle nine of the the theories about those crisscrossing lines inside the the circle. Um the one that people are probably most familiar with is this notion of integration or disintegration. And it's sometimes um referenced with, you know, an integration, you reach to your heart point and disintegration, you reach to your stress point. Um, the guy who came up with that, um, Claudio Naranjo, who sadly passed away last, last summer, actually, um, shortly after sort of putting that idea out into the wild, sort of retracted it and said, no, 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 it never meant integration or disintegration. But, but somehow that theory stuck. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and like I said, that's probably the most popular I think when you you look at it as simply integration or disintegration, reaching to to health um, or reaching maybe to unhealth, like you you lose a lot here because I think what happens with the enneagram is is you see that you're you're connected, you're connected to two types, which are your wings, the numbers adjacent to your dominant type, and then you are connected to these two types um, that sort of are connected with these arrows, this inner flow inside the circle, and I think what you see is these connections are actually the resolution of what's incomplete in our dominant type structure that we actually get stuck because of our dominant type structure and, and where we're stuck, where we're stalled, where, where, where we, we, we can't find the success or the traction or the freedom that we want. What we're generally trying to do is solve that with the very tools that got us into it. And, and, and what you realize very quickly is you're, you're going to have to reach outside of the, the trap that you're in to free yourself to open it. So I, I think for some of us, when we reach to our so-called stress point, um, that actually can be us at our best. Just like for some of us, when we reach to our so-called heart point, that can be at our, at our best. And, and, and I want to kind of frame that because I think um, the language of, of stress is, is unhelpful in this in this um, overlay, when I'm stressing a muscle, I'm actually strengthening it. When I'm stressing a muscle and using it, I'm, I'm, I'm actually sort of working it. 
and and I and I'll say this that some of us are actually better under stress. So mm-hmm. when some of us are are thrown into new environments, forced to move, when you know some of our our partners are in um precarious situations that we're out of control of, yes, it can derail parts of our our, our sense of self or it can actually press us into that inner strength, that inner courage, that inner peace. I would say the point is to learn to observe that. The point is to learn to really be aware of it. And and, and again, in the Enneagram, this is where you probably have heard some of this language that you have to sort of allow this inner critic to become an inner observer, right? right. This inner critic has to become an inner witness. And this inner witness then sort of looks outside and, and looks at the the traps that we make for ourselves, the the pain that we create for ourselves, the 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 worry and the 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 need to be in control of things that we can't control, and 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 this is the bummer that that probably in a large for a large part we're probably the source of our own suffering. It would be great work if we could actually learn to consent to the mystery and consent to the flow of life and let ourselves um, not be sort of mindlessly taken into it, but really given over to the possibility that in the end, it, it sure seems like love works everything out towards its own sake and, and, and towards its own sense of self. So those lines, I love to talk about those lines because man, there's so much going on inside the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. And one of my teachers, um, Michael Goldberg, this, this man who actually came up with, with, um, or he actually sort of saw and wrote a book about this at in Homer's work, The Odyssey, when Odysseus is making this this journey back from the Trojan War to Ithaca, um, his his nine stops actually follow the energies of the Enneagram mm-hmm. in order going around the circle counterclockwise. Well, Michael Goldberg has this theory that maybe we're not even one of the, the, the static points on the outside of the circle, but maybe we're somewhere on the lines inside that we're oh, more wow. mysterious, we're more dynamic, like we're we're, we're, we're so much more complex than we even, even understand. Wow. So, yeah. So that's one of the main things that drew me to the Enneagram to begin mm-hmm. with. I mean, it's, I, so I'm a five. Um, so the, the move from five to seven is pretty, um, extreme <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and surprising for a lot of people. And that's why I, any other typology system I've ever been involved with or taken or, you know, dove into, there was always like, there wasn't enough to it. It wasn't big enough. Um, so I was just always like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's fun. But I felt like the Enneagram was so fluid and allowed for so much variance and like movement um, mm. that it made so much sense to me. Um, and also, uh, so I mentioned my husband, he's an eight. Um, he has taken every psychological evaluation on the planet just due to the nature of his job. And for most of them, he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I sat him down and made him listen to, I don't remember who or who was on the podcast, but like a description of all of the types. And the minute it stopped on eight, he was like, oh my God, that's me. Like Mm -hmm. I've never felt so known. And I, you kind of touched on this earlier, which spurred the question, but, um, I feel like it's a really non-judgmental system. In that, I mean, yes, people have put names on each type just to make it, I guess, easier to talk about and fun to to claim. But uh, for the most part, they're just numerals, mm. and it's not on a line or a spectrum. Um, and so, and especially given my husband's personality as an eight, he often feels misperceived and misjudged as too, you know, I've heard it all like too much, too intense, you know, all of those things um, suits him well in work, <laughs> but you know, is is a challenge. Um, for him in other ways. So it's like, Oh, this is, this is 
I don't know. It just seemed like it was a more approachable system for him. Um, so yeah, I would love to see more widespread adaptation and actually, so humor me because Mm. I have, I asked him, he's currently deployed. He's in Afghanistan. Mm. So you have a question from Afghanistan from an eight (laughs) Mm. that I would love for you, um, to answer. Let's see. He says, I would ask your, Chris, your opinion on why eight's energy is misunderstood as hostility. Hmm. And if he agrees that, if he agrees with that, then what are some ways to tone down that perception? And he uses, he says, without betraying your personality. And I'm in, like, I'm beside myself that he used the word betray for an eight as, as part of his language, but can you tell me your thoughts on that and maybe what you would answer? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, that's a great question because there's, there's so much tucked into it. This is, um, one of the funny things like, um, about being an eight, like when I teach workshops and when I introduce the Enneagram, when I get to, um, type eight, it's like inevitably somebody is going to say this, Oh, I used to work with a really unhealthy eight. And usually what I try to say is, no, they're probably just an eight and you probably yeah. <laughs> weren't standing up for yourself. And mm. that's kind of a bummer for everybody because um, what that implies is, oh, it's my problem not being intense enough or it's my problem not fighting back or it's my problem not knowing how to handle the energy that eights put out there. And, and see, this is the push-pull of the ache here. Right. Eights feel like we can't bring all of ourselves into most of our relationships because, yes, it will come across as too much. And because of that, there is this kind of sense that we will be betrayed, that if we actually bring it all forward, it's going to cause people to, to withdraw. It's going to push people away. And so um, Don Riso, the late Don Riso, one of the great um, legacy teachers and authors of the Enneagram, used to talk about these lost and, and unconscious childhood messages and um, the last message that he he suggested for the eight was, you will not be betrayed. That mm-hmm. actually it's okay for you to be yourself. But you see, we don't we don't feel like that. We feel like, man, all this intensity, all of this energy, all of this zest for life is is unmatched in in, in most of our our friendships and relationships. Now this comes from the um the kind of let's say loss of contact with essence that the eight suffers as, as a little kid, right? So eights are, are born to be a source of truth. Eights are actually, and the virtue for the eight is innocence, but, but there's something in the eights sort of psyche as kids that cause us to kind of grow up too fast. Our childhood is accelerated and aspects of it are lost. And whatever those aspects are, we then try to protect, we try to cover up, we try to repress. And, uh, and the repressing of that is the hiding of our vulnerability. And so a lot of this energy that we put out that can be experienced as, as hostility is really just us not knowing to do with us, not knowing what to do with our, our innocence, with our vulnerability, with our inner child. Um, what you see though, is with a lot of eights, when they're around little kids, when they're around something tender, like a puppy or whatever, they, they can return to that very quickly. There's this, uh, this tenderness that comes forward when they don't have to control, when they don't have to fight, when there's something that that's sweet and, and, and just needs care for, um, it, it brings that out of us. It reminds us that that's still in there. 
So the bummer for eights is yes, we are eight holes. Like we <laughs> can do too much and we can come across too hard, but uh, all that's just a, a subconscious defense tactic to keep our own inner child um, protected. And uh, we don't have to, we don't have to do that. That inner child won't be betrayed. Even though there's a fear, it won't be. So since you since you brought up eight holes, I told him I wasn't going to mention the next comment, but it's, he did follow on and say, essentially, how to be an eight with having, without having to be a Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, we, There's a kind of aspect to eight structure that feels like we, we either have to kind of sell out to the intensity of our tru- truth or it's just going to come out and, and, and it's going to be too much. It's going to mm-hmm. actually lead to conflict and, and, and people are going to be hurt or wounded. And I, my sense is this, like the holy idea for type eight, right? And so in the Enneagram type structure, you have this holy idea, which I, I really believe is the first truth that you have to tell yourself. It's, it's the returning to your divine mind. It's it's in in Hamid Ali's language, your unobstructed view of reality, right? Seeing the world as it should be, even if it's not yet that way. Well, for the eight, that holy truth, I'm sorry, that yeah, that holy idea is called holy truth. And you see, eights misunderstand this. We think, oh, well, I'm just speaking the truth. Well, it's like, mm, you're not really speaking the truth. You're kind of being a bully. Um, the truth is that we learn to be compassionate. We learn to be gentle. We learn to be loving with ourselves, for ourselves. We learn to accept every aspect of who we are and we live in the integrity of that truth. And once we do, look out, it's like the clarity of seeing that the eights have um, will be marked with, yes, I, I think a kind of fierce gentleness that is truly rooted in love. And, and that's when the eights own the best best aspects of themselves. But man, it's uh, it's tough for us to get there because when the eight actually says yes to their divine mind, when the eight actually says yes to their holy idea, just like all of us in nine different ways, it will sabotage all of our fixated defense mechanisms. It will sabotage all of the lies that we've believed about ourselves. It, it will hijack all the ways that we've perfected this, this personality that we present in the world. And it, and it will cause us to make peace with, with our own inner truth. And, uh, man, that's, that's tough. Well, for the eight, that truth is that we are held in compassionate love and that when we can learn to willingly surrender to that love, we are finally free. But man, that's, that's tough language for the eight, right? That, Mm -hmm. that surrendering to love. Surrender. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it's all the. Uh, the vulnerability is hard. And honestly, you know, yeah. And especially given his profession, it's kind of hard to, to hold those two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially and live out your truth, uh, in that community. So yeah, it's tough stuff. Well, thank you for that. I'm so, I can't wait to, to share that with him. Um, so, well, since I, I just adored your explanation of that and I feel like it was so uh, opening for me to hear, could we go around each type in the same way and talk about the holy ideas? Sure. So I, 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 the holy ideas are actually, I think one of the most kind of convoluted aspects of type structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's confusing because they, they don't mean what they say. And, and, and so the languaging throws us but, but like I said, Hamid Ali, um, one of the, the, the first students of, of, of the group of people in 1971, 72, and 73 who developed the Enneagram types, the Enneagram of personality, mm-hmm. um, 
calls the holy ideas your unobstructed view of reality. Oscar Chasso, right? The man who, who really brought the building blocks forward um, for the Enneagram of personality calls these holy ideas psychocatalyzers. And in fact, he says, if this is the only aspect of the Enneagram that you're aware of and that you know, it's all you need to work with because it really will yeah. sort of unfixate us from our, our, our conditioned personalities. So like I said, I, I really think that the holy ideas are the first truth that we have to tell ourselves. It's the returning to our divine mind. And in the Enneagram of belonging, I actually, and the eight in me hates this because it's so cliche, but I actually kind of write these through the ABCs of, of getting back to the basics. The A's being the affirmations that we have to mm-hmm. make, the B's being the beliefs that we have to correct, and then the C's being the confessions that, that free us. Right. So for type one, the traditional holy idea is called perfection, holy perfection. But that doesn't mean that the ones are ever going to be perfected. In fact, the affirmation here, I I really believe for the one is you're complete when you celebrate your imperfections. The belief is that there is a divinely compassionate and intrinsic perfection of love within you that you can't earn it it just is and you trying to make yourself better doesn't make yourself more lovable and and so for the one i think the confession then is you have to learn to accept what is as it is starting with your perfectly flawed self Mm -hmm. and and i think that returns you to to clarity right for the two it's it's traditionally called holy will or holy freedom and i think the affirmation for the two is you are a co-creator with love you're not the source of love and you don't control love. You're a co-creator with love, which I think leads to this belief that there is an unconditional freedom to be loved and love. And, and you see poor twos allowing themselves to be loved can 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 be painful because they think that, like I said, they're the source of, of love. So if the confession for the two then becomes this, 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 this kind of willing release of all obligations in relationship to the indispensability that I hate to say it, we don't need you, but in mm-hmm. love, we find our way together. Now for the three, man, poor threes, this is a bummer because threes hate to kind of be out of, they love the, the playbook and the script on everybody else. They just don't want us to have it on them. The traditional holy idea for the three has been holy hope, holy law, um, holy harmony. And so this is where you can see how the language is so confusing, so convoluted. It, it really doesn't help us. My sense is the affirmation for the three has to be along the lines of I am changed by love. And I think that affirmation sort of puts a pin in this um, subtle way that threes change everything. They are quietly in control, right? Mm -hmm. So the corrective belief here for the three is learning to believe that there is inherent value in all souls. And that starts with theirs. You know, Mm -hmm. the bummer for the three is they, they, they're sometimes called this, the, the, the achiever. They, they sometimes, um, are framed as the need to succeed. And and for the three, it's really never about success or failure. It's never about winning or losing. It's all about value. It's all about trying to make themselves more valuable because they think if they are more valuable, they're more lovable. And so fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's it's really about being loved, which I think leads to this kind of confession for the three, which is I embrace the permanence of my value that cannot be earned. Mm. And man, that takes so much pressure off the three and that actually sort of taps the brake on the drive there, right? For the four, the traditional holy idea is called, um, it's been called holy origin, right? And um, this is the bummer for the four. The four suffers this this kind of 
fear that they don't have a, a sense of of being belonging. They don't know the the source of their identity here from where they've come. So I think the affirmation here, um, when the four start to work with their holy idea, is you are connected to love. Um, the belief is there is a divine source in all of life, and and again, this has to start with your life if you're a four, which leads to this concept, this confession for the four, which is I am conscious of compassionate belonging, and and, mm-hmm. and it's a conscious choice because it's a truth, and that's really the 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 alignment with that divine mind of the four, for the five. Uh, traditionally, it's also called um, that holy idea, holy transparency or holy omniscience. I think the affirmation here is love is the coherence that holds everything together. And, and that kind of takes some of that pressure off the five to figure everything out because you can't figure love out. You you align with it. Mm-hmm. Well, the belief here is I believe there is a divine truth in silence. There is love in the unknown, which leads to this confession for the five. And and I love this 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 idea. but the confession being, I am rooted in mystery. And, and that's really letting go of that uh, conditioned mind to have to know and understand everything and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of unconditioned self that that gives itself over to mystery. For the six, right? The traditional holy idea has, has been um, called holy faith or, or holy strength. And I think the affirmation here for six is, has to be, I am courageous because of love. And I think when the six roots himself in, in self-love, there's there's no one braver. We'll we'll follow them wherever, right? The belief here for the six is I believe there is a divine love grounded in compassion that liberates fear. And and you know this for the six who is is cliche and caricatured out as as the fear type. It, it's it's not really fear. It's concern, and that concern is mm. is the evidence of, of of the care and the love that they want to offer others. And so the confession, I think, for the six, when they align with their their divine mind, is I make an option for the absurd to believe beyond belief. And, and I think that's faith. I think faith is making an option for the absurd. I don't think you actually have to believe the things you put your faith in. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. And, and, right. and this is where the six begins to um, see clearly. The seven. This is, again, confusing, right? Traditionally, um, Oscar Chasso, he used to he used to call the the holy idea for the seven, either holy wisdom, holy work or holy plan. And that kind of comes out of this, this notion that, you know, in the old days, Oscar Chasso used to call the seven, the, the ego plan, like the one who's fixated on the future that can't be in the present. And so that mind that's always problem solving, that mind that's always anticipating that mind that's always preoccupied actually needs to come back to this affirmation that, in the present, I am loved. And you see, for the seven, the present can be the most painful place. The, this has to be supported, by, I think, by this belief that I believe constancy through constraint leads to contentment. And for the seven, who's one of the most restless and unsatisfying, um, constraint actually is what's going to allow for that contentment to, to set in. And so the confession, I think, that supports that path and that process for the seven is I affirm the enoughness of each moment. And in each moment, right, this is where the seven returns to their virtue of sobriety. For the eight, right, like I said earlier, the the, the traditional holy idea has been called um, holy truth. And um, the the bummer for the eights is we, we think we're speaking the truth, but in fact, if there's no love in it, then there's no truth in that. So we have to start with this affirmation. I am held in compassionate love. 
And man, for the eight to allow themselves to be held, for the eight to give over to self-compassion and for the eight to surrender to love is, is painful, right? So this has to be supported by this belief. I believe all truth comes from the source of love. And if whatever we think our truth is, if it's not rooted in love, I, I, I think there's no truth in it. And so, like I mentioned earlier, this confession then is I willingly surrender to love. Finally, for the nine, right? And and I love this for the nine. And actually, I think that the, the original language was so great. Yichasso called the holy idea for the nine, holy love. And, mm. and this shows us that nines are, are born to be a source of love. And so the affirmation here for the nine is I cooperate with love. And, and this cooperation is important for the nine because so many nines give so much of themselves away that there's really no cooperation. In fact, they diminish themselves, they minimize themselves, they lose themselves, and it's all about the other. So this languaging of cooperation implies the partnering and the partnership. This, this is supported, I think, by this belief. I believe love anchors my being in compassionate self-awareness. And this is a call for the nine to wake up, mm -hmm. to come back into their own body and to own their, their gifts. And, and, and this is supported, I think, this path of, of, of confession for the nine starts when they can, can, can say this and, and, and own this. I am a source of love because I first love myself. And I think for the nine, they have to be able to do this in a way where they realize that self-love is not selfish. Because, look, we, we can only love someone as far as we've learned to love ourselves, and, and we see this. We see this pattern in all of life. Our mentors, our teachers, our guides can only take us as far as they've gone themselves. And, and so I think for all of us, we uh, also align with what the nine has to, to teach us and show us. And we really do learn to love ourselves first. I have been taking notes furiously. <laughs> I feel like I can't wait for this book to come out because this is, I, I just adore the, everything that you're framing around love and mm. bringing us home. Um, again, for a community that never quite feels home, mm. uh, we're always on the move and always kind of like grasping for roots or, you know, what are we, where are we? Um, I, this is, this is so special and so huge. Um, you have a quote in, in the very beginning of this book um, that talks about, you've already kind of touched on some of it, the uh, addictive loops and of our mental and emotional preoccupations that keep us stuck. Um, and you say, this is what entrenches the illusions of our ego's mythologies, and this is how we get ourselves lost. And the challenge is to find our way home. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the practices that we can implement? Yeah. So... So my, 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 my real sense here is the Enneagram of personality shows our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around these so-called childhood wounds so that we do not have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. And, and that's evidenced, I think, when we try to trick out and build out and, 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 and really kind of support the projection of our own ego mythology, right? So, so what I mean by that is how I present myself in the world isn't really who I am. It's, it's who I want to be seen as it's what I think is acceptable. It's digestible, what's permissible. And, 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 and when that's how we live, then personality, right. Becomes a mask. It becomes the masks that we wear. It becomes the mask actually that we cover our essence, our gifts, our true self up with. So most of us are fine believing that we are the mask most of us are fine actually believing we are the personality that we present but i think for a lot of us we get to a certain point in life and we're like no nope, there's got to be more and 
I wish there was more and I wish I could return to my strength or my freedom or my innocence or my hope. So in my book, The Sacred Enneagram, I actually try to offer really practical roadmaps for each of the nine types by saying, if you can actually develop a mindfulness, meditation, or contemplative practice, and you can hold that practice in either this interior posture of solitude, silence, or stillness, then that's the first step. That's the first step of taking off the mask. That's the first step of breaking off the scaffolding around the projection of our ego mythology. But then I also take it a step further and I say, if you can also then take this posture, solitude, silence, or stillness, and allow it to hold a mindfulness intention, either consenting by saying yes to that solitude, silence, or stillness, either embracing or engaging that solitude, silence, or stillness, or either resting in that solitude, silence, or stillness, it actually really helps confront your Enneagram type's mental fixation. It helps loosen its sort of entrapment. Mm. And it, it, it's like it, it, it starts to free the holy ideas forward. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for those of you who are dominant in type one, it, it really is learning to rest in stillness. Look, you've, you've done enough. You're good enough. You fixed yourself and, and everybody else in your life and your whole world. Stop and rest. You, you deserve that. For the two, it's consenting to solitude. It's saying yes to yourself first. And man, for twos, that's going to trigger shame and guilt. But no, if you can't say yes to yourself, you you really aren't saying yes in the best ways to others. For Enneagram type threes, this is embracing and engaging your interior solitude. It's looking inward for your value, not outward. It's realizing you cannot earn something that's always been ascribed and that you're loved for who you are, not how you're seen and what you accomplish in in the ways that you're affirmed. For the four, it's resting in solitude. It's just letting all the pressure to find out who you are go and going inward to figure it out because the answer is already there. For the five, it's saying yes to silence. It's it's consenting to that silence. It's it's turning down the noise of of asking the right questions and and, and, and sussing out the right answers. For six is poor six is it's embracing and engaging that silence without fear, but actually realizing in the engagement of silence, your courage actually shows up and comes forward. And for the seven, it's resting in silence. And and for the sevens, man, it's so hard to rest because there's such an up and outward energy. There's so much momentum. Um, so that rest is not only for the seven, but it's for everybody else in the life of the seven who's kind of exhausted from all that energy. But that silence is also saying, if you can't listen to what's in the present, you're never going to actually be able to appreciate what's in the future. And you see the sevens are, like I said, preoccupied with with what's next. And and so in the silence, it's remembering that now is the most important. For the eights, it's consenting to stillness. It's saying yes to stopping, slowing down. And that's what will allow that inner child to come forward. And for the nines, it's embracing that stillness because the poor nine is doing so much for everybody else, but to embrace themselves is, is the path of remembering and, and, and for the nine to come back to their own power. It's incredible. I've tried implementing it. It's harder than it sounds. Mm. <laughs> um, as the five, I'm, I'm always, there's just always noise in my head. I mean, there's just mm. always, always, always something running. And even in preparation for this interview, Chris, I have to tell you, I have been like so nervous and like, oh, I've got to read all the things and like listen to all the podcasts he's ever been on. <laughs> 
And just being completely transparent, I had to finally just tell it to stop. And Claire even was like, okay, do you have your questions lined up? I was like, sort of, but also I'm a five. So I have avoided the whole thing. Mm. (laughs) I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I can't prepare anymore. Um, I can't spin myself up in, in knowing more um, in order to sound confident and to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm going to have to just, I'm just going to have to go with it. So mm. I appreciate your patience with mm. me and your crazy five friend who <laughs> mm. wanted to pick your brain for a moment. Um, okay. So you are at Chris Hewart's everywhere online and that's H E U E R T Z. Um, the book, the Enneagram of belonging is out or it's available for pre-order now you guys. Um, but tell us when that will be available or when it's going to be live yeah. published. So lots, lots of, of, I think exciting things are happening. Um, the Enneagram mm-hmm. of belonging will drop in May, May 19th. Um, so you can pre-order that now. And I guess by the time this is out, it should be out. There'll be a companion workbook, um, to kind of map these, um, exercises and, and practices, um, for how to belong to yourself so that you can belong to others, um, for how you can allow every aspect of yourself to belong, um, so that you can make peace with yourself and, and really develop self-acceptance and, and compassion. Um, so that's in, in, in May. Um, in April, we'll have a, a TEDx talk on the Enneagram um, available that will, will be titled You're, You're More Than Your Type. Um, one of my, my teachers, Russ Hudson, constantly reminds us that we have a type, but we're not our type. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have um, a few other things going on. Um, I'll have a podcast show called Enneagram Map Makers, which is, is kind of a hat tip to exploring the uncharted interior landscape of the ego where I interview 10 of the great legacy teachers, including Russ Hudson and Helen Palmer and Sandra Maitri and Richard Rohr. Um, And then in June, um, we are launching our first um, sacred, the integral studies of the sacred Enneagram certificate um, program. And so we have folks registered already from Mexico and Canada and 20 U S states and Denmark and, and New Zealand who will be coming to Omaha for an eight day intensive um, training where if you want to use the Enneagram in your professional life or, or vocationally, we want to try to help equip and, and give tools so that that can be um, part of your gift and part of your contribution. So lots and lots and lots going on around here. That is so exciting. I know I told my husband the other day that he needs to spring for me to take a trip to the gravity center for something. I don't know mm. what. I just, I just want to come hang out. So yeah. well, <laughs> be on I, the lookout. <laughs> yeah. And actually, if you go to the sacred Enneagram.org, um, we have yet to, to, to update a lot of the workshops um, for 2020. But we will be doing um, events in, in Portland and in, in Nashville and in, in Chicago and Denver. Um, I, there'll, there'll probably be another 15 workshops um, once the, the new book drops. And so we'll, we'll be probably somewhere close to wherever most of you all are. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you and all the work that you do, um, you and your wife. I know you guys are heavily involved in so many amazing things and making this planet a better place to be. So thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for including me. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks for joining us this week on Advice Not Given. 
for resources and links to all the things mentioned in today's episode, head over to our website at millspogurus.com. That's M-I-L-S-P-O-G-U-R-U-S. If you enjoyed this episode, please help others find us by adding your thoughts to an iTunes review and subscribing so you never miss a show. If you're interested in being a next level supporter of our endeavors, check out our Patreon page. You can pledge as little as a dollar per episode to help us out with expenses. Think of it as eavesdropping on our coffee date, but then sending over a latte. It's a thing. Also, be sure to find us on Instagram and Facebook at Gurus, where we keep the conversation going and where you can share your advice not given. 